If you have your Bibles this morning, I encourage you to open to the second book of the New Testament, the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1. While you're turning there or turning on your electronic device to get to you to there, uh, I want to invite you back, women, tonight at 5.30 in the senior high room for girls' night out. Of course, girls is used to embrace women of every age uh, in, in the terminology used here. Wonderful time of connecting and fellowship and a meal. Men, I'd like to invite you to, to join us in the middle school room tonight at 5.30 for, for uh, crew night. And uh, Andre Jones will be speaking there. Why would you come back on a Sunday night? You know, I was sharing in the leadership class this morning that being part of a church is like being part of a family. I mean, that is the dominant image in the New Testament of the local church. It's a family. And what do you do when you're part of a family? You show up at the family gatherings. Even if there's people in the family there that you normally wouldn't mix, that you might not even choose, you show up because you're family. You show up because that's what brings a family together. And so men and women, two wonderful opportunities to be part of the family of Christ, the family of Christ here at Central tonight at 5.30. And great food, great fellowship, great source of inspiration. Mark, why are we in a gospel? You know, I ran across something this week, uh, one name that just kind of stands out in the last 150 years of church history is J.C. Ryle, and he had this to say, it would be well if Christians studied the four gospels more than they do. No doubt all Scripture is profitable, It is not wise to exalt one part of the Bible at the expense of another, but I think it would be good for some who are very familiar with the epistles and other parts of the Bible if they knew a little bit more about the writings of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Now, why do I say this? I say it because I want Christians to know more about Christ. It is good to be acquainted with the doctrines and principles of Christianity. It is better to be acquainted with Christ himself. It is well to be familiar with faith and grace and justification and sanctification. These are all important matters in Christianity, but it is far better to be familiar with Jesus himself, to see the king's own face, to behold His beauty. This is one secret of eminent holiness that he or she who would be conformed to Christ's image and become a Christ-like man or woman must be constantly studying Christ Himself and herself. Surely we cannot know this Christ too well, can we? Surely there is not a word, nor a deed, nor a day, nor a step, nor a thought in the record of his life which ought not to be precious to us. We should labor to be familiar with every line that is written about Jesus. That's why we are in the Gospel of Mark. That's why we are going to take an extended time in the Gospel of Mark. We need individually and together a a deeper look at Jesus we, we need more and more to gaze at him and be changed and transformed as we gaze at Jesus. Well, this morning's text 
uh, where we are presently in chapter 1 of the Gospel of Mark is verses 14, and we'll go through eventually this morning. We'll go through 20, but let me start with the first couple of verses this morning, 14 and 15. After John, that's John the Baptist, after John was arrested, Jesus went to Galilee preaching the gospel of God. And then Mark tells us what he was preaching that Mark says is the gospel of God. The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the gospel. Now, my first question looking at this text, and by the way, as you read through Scripture, as you study Scripture, my practice, I think an easy practice that everyone can follow, ask the obvious questions. And here's the first obvious question to me. What is the gospel? Gospel is one of those terms in Christian circles that I believe many of us really don't have a clear understanding of, of what it means. Is the gospel simply the plan of salvation? Is it what, when you open that little tract, is that the gospel? That's what some people would say. Is the gospel a manifesto of social justice? We're hearing that a lot today, even in evangelical circles. It's the gospel is about racial reconciliation or other matters of social justice. Is that what the gospel is? You may know what the literal meaning of the word is if you've been in church long enough. Gospel actually is an old English term. It comes from the God part is actually good for good. And spell is actually the old English word for news, good news. What is the news that is supposed to be good here? Well, you read through the rest of the New Testament, and you see what the apostles preached was the good news, the gospel. It was all about Jesus. It was all about the story of his life, the story of his death, the story of his resurrection. And probably one of the most significant passages, it's not on your screen, but you might write it down and look it up later, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul tells us that the gospel that he preached wherever he went is this, Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. Christ was buried. He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. And he appeared in his resurrected body to his disciples, and after that, more than 500 others. Now, many of the apostles developed further after Jesus' death and resurrection what the gospel message here. But remember when Mark is writing, Mark is writing before Jesus has gone to the cross. Mark is writing about Jesus' words himself before he's crucified and resurrected. And so, I really think what we need to ask, the the real question this morning of the text is, what is the gospel according to Jesus? What does Jesus tell us the gospel is? And here's what Mark says in verse 15. Again, this is Jesus's words Mark is recording. The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the gospel. This is the gospel of God that Jesus was proclaiming. The time is fulfilled, or if you have the New International Version, the time has come. In other words, the point in human history that God has been promising all through the Old Testament, it now has arrived. God has inaugurated a new phase of human history, and this is the phase we're living in. It was inaugurated when Jesus came, and this new phase of human history, it demands a new way of thinking. 
You cannot be neutral to this new way, this new phase and its implications. And what is so radically different in this new period of human history? He says, the kingdom of God has come. The kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God has come near. What is the kingdom of God? I got another one of those terms in Christian circles that we may not have a clear handle on. You know, we're in a Western democratic culture. We elect our leaders. Kingdom is kind of foreign to us. We really don't like those ideas of a monarchy and And even those are not true pictures of the kingdom when we think of the kingdom of God. And then we bring in our our evangelical cultural ideas, especially if we've lived a long time in the south of of what this means to to be part of the Christian faith. We we talk about a, a personal relationship with Jesus. And of course, there are Scripture that speaks to that, but you never see Jesus saying, do you want to have a personal relationship with me? Jesus speaks in terms of, do you want to enter the kingdom? Jesus presents how he relates to us in terms of the kingdom of God. And so when Jesus talks about the good news, here it is. The kingdom of God has come near. Ray Steadman, Pastor Ray Steadman, favorite pastor, is with the Lord now. Uh, He says it's so much better than I. What is the kingdom of God? He says it this way. By this phrase, kingdom of God, Jesus speaks of the fact that we are surrounded by an invisible spiritual kingdom. And from that realm, great forces, evil and good, act on our lives. In that kingdom, Jesus is Lord. Jesus reigns supreme. And that kingdom governs all events of history. That kingdom governs all the events of our daily lives and circumstances. The kingdom of God has come. Jesus is the king. This kingdom reigns over everything. Now, I've got to be honest with you. I've got to be real with you here. I watch the news. I look at what I see happening in the world around me. And I don't see much evidence, visible evidence, of Jesus reigning over everything. I see a lot of people thumbing their nose at Jesus, defying Jesus. I see a lot of things happening in the world, and I'm sure you do as well, evil and injustice and hatred, that, that I want Jesus to come and reign over. So maybe you're like me, you know, at first glance, and that's all it is, at first glance, you might say, as I say, well, I don't see Christ ruling. So how do we reconcile what we see with Jesus saying the kingdom of God is now at hand, the kingdom of God, this new phase, this new reign has inaugurated? We need to understand the different forms of the kingdom of God that the Bible reveals to us. We, in, in the Old Testament, we see one form, and that is the kingdom that is promised to come. The Old Testament promises the coming ruling of the Messiah of Christ. And everything points to that day when the Messiah will come and rule. That's what we see of the kingdom of God in the Old Testament. Now, and what Jesus inaugurates here in Mark chapter 1 
we see a rule, we see a reign of Jesus Christ, but it is a spiritual reign. Mark tells us, or Jesus tells us here in Mark, that in this present age, Jesus rules, but he rules spiritually, that he doesn't yet assert his authority to rule visibly over all the nations and over all people, but he reigns spiritually in the hearts of every person who bows their knee to him as Savior and Lord. But it doesn't end there with the present spiritual realm. Right now in this present spiritual realm, people have a choice whether they're going to bow their knee to him or not. And many choose not to, as you well know. And at one point, even if you're a believer today, at one point we who are believers, we didn't bow our knee to him. Soon there is coming a new phase of the kingdom of God, a new form, the millennial rule, the millennial kingdom, the millennial rule of Christ that the Bible tells us is coming soon. And in that period, we read that all nations and all people will bow before the Lord Jesus visibly and submit to his reign. Willing or not, they will be brought into complete submission. And there's many sermons that could be preached on the millennial rule and reign of Christ. That's not for today. But it doesn't even end there. One day in the future, there is yet one more form. One day in the future, when Jesus Christ accomplishes his final judgment, the eternal rule of Christ will begin. And in that rule, those who were redeemed, those who have bowed to him in this life as Savior and Lord and entered his kingdom, the redeemed will dwell with Christ in the new heavens and the new earth forever and ever. So we need to look at what we see of the events around us in view of the form of the kingdom that we are presently in. What he inaugurated, we see, is a spiritual reign. Well, Mark begins here to show us that the kingdom of God is at the heart of Jesus' message. He will refer to the kingdom of God over and over and over again, as we'll see as we go through Mark, at least 14 different times. Jesus, speaking on the kingdom of God, we'll see, we'll see he, he teaches how we might enter the kingdom of God. He's, he'll, we'll see in future chapters that that we enter as little children. We enter as seeking first the kingdom of God. We don't enter by the base of what we do or what we have or how wealthy we are or how righteous we think we are. We enter it with the humility of children. We enter it going beyond other concerns in life and seeking it first. Jesus teaches or his mighty works reveal the presence of the kingdom. We'll see over and over again that his miracles, that his casting out of demons was designed to show his authority on earth, he says, that he is the reigning king that has the ability to cast out demons. We will see this revealed in his transfiguration where where Jesus tells us that the kingdom of God has come with power by what they saw at the transfiguration. Jesus will also show us through his parables, truths about the kingdom. The kingdom is like a mustard seed, we'll see. It starts out very small and grows and grows and grows. The kingdom of God is is like a sower scattering seed, and it takes root in some lives and, and is stifled in other lives. He'll teach us through parables about the kingdom of God. And of course, 
Jesus teaches us to pray about the kingdom. He teaches us in his most famous prayer to pray, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What is that that we pray when we pray as Jesus taught us? That's an expression that we long for God to bring in the millennial kingdom, to bring in the eternal kingdom when everyone will be forced to bow before him, when all things will be put under his feet, when Christ will rule undisputed over all the earth as he now rules in heaven. Well, what does Christ's message of the kingdom of God mean for you today? Interesting to learn about this. How does this speak to you as you sit here today? Really, it boils down to this. There are only two realities when it comes to the kingdom of God. You're either living in the kingdom of God as a citizen of the kingdom of God, having bowed to him as the king, or you're enslaved to the kingdom of self. There is no middle ground here. You either recognize the spiritual reign of Jesus Christ, and you have submitted your life to him, or you ignore it even if you know it, or maybe you even deny it like so many do, and you try to live your own way without Christ. You try to live your life with Christ at the very least in the background or maybe not in the picture of all. And people who live like that, I know they think that they're really free because they have no ultimate authority over them, but they're deceived. And actually, they're enslaved. They're enslaved to the demonic powers, but they're enslaved even to the kingdom of self and what that does to us. So here's a question for you to think about this morning. Which kingdom do I live in? Do I truly submit to the kingdom of God and recognize Jesus' reign over my life? Do I inwardly, do I bow my knee before him? Or am I living under the kingdom of self where I'm enslaved? You know, I look at the moral anarchy and the spiritual bankruptcy and the growing chaos of the world around me and I come to the conclusion, at least, that when we try to live our own, our own life, our own way, without any ultimate authority, thinking that we're our own kings, whether we use that word or not, we only succeed in debasing and destroying ourselves. So I find it truly good news that there is a king. There is an ultimate authority. There is a kingdom. And that kingdom, while now existing only spiritually on this earth, one day is coming physically. One day is coming permanently. I find that truly, truly good news. And Jesus tells us that when you're ready to hear this good news, when you're ready to really receive this good news that the kingdom of God is at hand, there is only one authentic response. It's right there in verse 15. Repent and believe in the gospel. What is repenting? You may have heard this before. Repenting is changing your mind. What do you change your mind about as you realize this reality of the kingdom of God? It means changing your mind about living life your own way without God. Yeah, that's not working out for me so well. Yeah, that doesn't line up with the truth. I'm going to think differently about that. Repenting means changing your mind about your view of yourself as a good person. How many people I talk to, even people in church who believe that ultimately, whether they get into heaven or not, is, is going to be kind of a, a balancing of the scales. Uh, yeah, I've been a pretty, pretty good person. I've done some bad stuff, but I've been a pretty good person. No, it's, 
changing your mind about that. I am not good. There is only one who is good, the Lord and King Jesus Christ. It means changing your mind about trusting in your good deeds and even your good intentions. That's not the basis of entrance into the kingdom. That is not entering the kingdom like a child when I think I do enough good deeds and my heart is basically good. That is not how we enter the kingdom. Repenting and believing. Believing is really the other side of the coin. If, if repenting means I, I no longer believe those faulty ideas that have, have actually contributed to my enslavement in the kingdom of self up to this point, believing means I change my mind about my dependency upon God. I thought I could live by myself. I thought I could direct my life the way I wanted to, but I need God. I need His mercy. I need His grace. I need His faithfulness. I am dependent upon God as He loves me and reaches out to me through Jesus Christ. It means believing means changing your mind about your need for forgiveness and transformation. I can't present myself as a good person before God. I need to be forgiven for all that I have done, for my sinful tendencies. I can't change myself. I can't try hard enough. I need to be transformed by the Holy Spirit that God, that Christ has put into me. It means, believing means changing your mind about your trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ that my standing before God, my, my citizenship in the kingdom comes about with me contributing nothing except my sin, that he has done everything, that what Jesus has accomplished at the cross and at the resurrection is really, as I embrace it like a child in simple, humble faith, that is my entrance into the kingdom, repenting and believing. And by the way, as Jesus speaks these words, the form of the words here, present imperatives. Imperatives, they're commands, repent and believe, present, an ongoing continuous action. Yeah, you know, there is a point in time where, where I began to repent and believe. If, if you're a believer here today, there's a point in time where you began to repent and believe. If you're not, haven't ever done that, maybe today is the day when you need to begin to repent and believe but it's an ongoing, continuous activity. I live my whole Christian life repenting and believing, turning away, changing my mind about those old beliefs, believing, changing my mind, embracing what is truth in the Scripture. So there is a point where this all begins in our lives. And, and maybe you're here this morning, and that's never begun in your life. And you know what? It can begin today. When we close out the service in a little bit, you know, there are people who, who they're, they're in the back, they're up front, and one of the things that would give them the greatest joy is, is if they could help you begin to take that first step in repenting and believing and, and walk you through what it means to begin to follow Jesus. So the king has come. The king has come. The kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God is at hand. How does the king begin his reign? Look at verse 16. As he, Jesus, was passing along by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, Simon's brother. They were casting a net into the sea since they were fishermen. And that picture up there, I know you can't see it well, and it doesn't do it justice, but I had the, I had the lifetime privilege 
uh, in the summer of 2017 of, of visiting Israel, and that's a picture that I took of the Sea of Galilee, just so beautiful at dusk. And, and I got to tell you, it was the trip of a lifetime. It was the vacation, the trip of a lifetime. If, if you have not met or if you've not been to Israel and been on a tour of the Holy Land, I'd encourage you to pray that God might create the opportunity for you to go. I, my desire would be that every follower of Jesus Christ would get an opportunity to go and walk where he walked and see. It, it, is, it is simply life-changing and brings the Bible to life. So there's my little plug for going to Israel and my, uh, my attempt at photography. He's passing along by the Sea of Galilee. Maybe he had some glimpse just like that in the picture there. And he encounters Simon and Andrew. And then we're told in verses 17 and 18, he gives them this, this stark, this, this almost blunt invitation. Follow me, Jesus told them. Follow me and I will make you fish for people. Or some versions, I will make you fishers of men. Immediately, they left their nets and followed him. Immediately. How do we explain that response? That quick invitation, that immediate response. Hold that question in mind because we see it again in verses 19 and 20. Going on a little farther, verse 19, he saw James the son of Zebedee and his brother John. They were in their boats mending their nets. Verse 20, immediately they called him, excuse me, immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. Again, how do we explain that response? I mean, that doesn't line up with my interactions with people that if this was the first time that they met him, that suddenly they would just leave everything and follow him. And so a little bit of study reveals that there's a reason we have four Gospels and not just one Gospel, because we see in other Gospels that this was not the first time that Jesus had met these four men. The Gospel of John tells us that Jesus met these men. If we look back in John chapter 1, Jesus met Andrew. Andrew was one of John the Baptist's disciples at the time, and Andrew brought along his brother Simon, Simon Peter, and introduced him to Jesus. And John and James likely met Jesus during that same time period when Jesus was down in, in Judea and John the Baptist was ministering. And John the Baptist points out Jesus to them as, there is the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. So there's exposure to Jesus. There, is, there was probably even a period of time of interacting with Jesus that, that Mark, for his own reasons, does not record. Does that mean that there is a contradiction between the two Gospels? No, not at all. It means that the Holy Spirit inspired Mark to record events in a certain way for certain purposes, and the Holy Spirit inspired John to record his gospel with certain events for certain purposes, and together we, we get a fuller picture here. So how do we put this all together? Uh, again, I'm, I'm not going to reinvent the wheel here. In 1871, a Scottish minister by the name of A.B. Bruce 
compared all these encounters with Jesus that these disciples had. He, he wrote a book, The Training of the Twelve, and he laid out what I, I think best describes not just the experience of the first disciples, but our experience as we begin to follow Jesus. So even as we go through this, think about how your own life and your own steps in following Jesus might fall in line with this. A.B. Bruce in the training of the Twelve basically said that he saw three stages of following Jesus as one of his disciples, as a follower. There is, and I'll go into two of these in a little more depth today and touch on the third one when we get there later in Mark. The first stage is the come and see stage. That's Jesus' invitation to Andrew in John 1.39. Come and see. And we'll go into depth into that in a minute. The second stage is the come follow me stage. That's where we are in our text today in Mark chapter 1, verse 17. And then in a few weeks, when we get to Mark chapter 3, we'll see the third stage, the come and be with me stage. Come and see. Come and see. You read the first four chapters of John, and you see this initial stage. This encompassed probably the first four months of Jesus' public ministry. It overlapped with the ministry of John the Baptist, which we looked at a couple weeks ago, and that's how at least these four men, maybe others of the disciples, first were exposed to Jesus during these first four months. It was mostly in Judea, closer to Jerusalem, and where John was baptizing. And the interesting thing in that in these first four months, there were thousands of people attracted to Jesus to come hear what he was saying, to watch what he was doing. They were curious about him, but when his teaching became difficult, when his teaching became challenging, the curious kind of left. The curious kind of left. Isn't that much like what happens with us? This is probably the initial experience of, of Simon and Andrew and James and John. They They're exposed to Jesus. We're exposed to Jesus. They hear He's the Christ. We hear He is the Savior, the Lord, the Son of God. There's an initial curiosity, an initial excitement about that. Jesus extends an initial invitation to Andrew, come and see. Maybe you've had that invitation, not directly from the mouth of Jesus, but somebody has brought you to church or to a conference or to hear a speaker or to a Bible study. And in one form or another, that's the invitation to you. Well, come and see. Come and see what this is all about. It's that initial phase where we're kind of checking out who Jesus is, where we're observing things about Him and the claims that He makes about Himself. It's maybe even when we take our first few steps, we start attending church regularly or a Sunday school class regularly or Bible study regularly because we want to learn more. It's an exploring phase. But just like many of the thousands that were first attracted to Him because they were curious, many, that's as far as they go, many when it becomes difficult, when it becomes challenging, the curious leave. And that's probably even initially what happened to these men. These four men probably went back after a time to their old lives. They went back to what they knew. They went back to fishing. They went back to their families. They went back to what they were comfortable with. But Jesus seeks them out, doesn't he, in the second phase. That's my story, exposed to 
the gospel initially as a teenager, making some first steps, and then kind of drifting, kind of drifting, and Jesus seeking me out. Jesus seeking me out in my early 20s. And that's the second stage, come follow me. Come follow me is the invitation Jesus gives to these men. Really, we see this come follow me stage in the first three chapters of Mark. Uh, Chronologically, it's the next 10 months of Jesus' public ministry. It is uh, mostly in Galilee, away from the city centers of Jerusalem, away from the threats in Judea. And, And still, he draws the crowds. They come for the events, but he has very few followers, very few who've taken that second step. Come follow me. And the beginning of that stage is what we're witnessing here in verses 17 through 20. Yeah, these men have gone back to their old lives, but I bet seeds were planted in that first stage, just like they were planted in my life in my teenage years. And they kept thinking about those. And so when Jesus comes along on the seashore of Galilee and he extends that invitation, come follow me, they're ready. They're ready. They're ready to go from just being the curious to now being followers, to learn more about him, to to follow him and observe his ways, to be committed to him. You know, I wonder, you know, where you are this morning. Uh, I don't judge whether uh, where a person is by by age or by length of time in church. There are people who've been sitting in church for for decades who have never gotten beyond the first stage. They're they're the the curious. They're coming. They're spectators. They 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 want to be entertained. They they want to hear more about Jesus. But really, in terms of taking those next steps, that's never happened. I, I hope that's not any of you this morning. But if it is, there's an invitation for even you this morning to take that next step, to come, go from being a curious person to being a follower of Jesus. If you've heard that first invitation, come and see. Now today, I hope you hear Jesus speaking through the Gospel of Mark here. Come follow me. Come take that next step. And this is a call that that as Jesus makes it here, as we see in, in verse 17, It's not just for the original 12 disciples. This describes what any of us must do to become a genuine follower of Jesus. And by the way, just like he made the call to these men, he makes it to us. It's not a a call to become part of a particular religious tradition or particular aesthetic lifestyle. It's a call to a person. It's a call to follow a person, Jesus Christ. It's a call to put our faith and our hope not in a denomination, not in a particular church, not in a particular tradition, but in who Jesus is and in what Jesus has done. Look at the second part of that. Follow me and I will make you. Do you notice that he doesn't say you have to meet certain qualifications? You notice that he doesn't say, follow me after you get your life straightened up. Go work out those relationships. Go clean up this part of your life, and then you can come and follow me. Do you notice that he says you don't have to have, you know, some Bible degree or even any Bible knowledge? Come follow me, and I will make you. He will do the training. He will develop in us by his Holy Spirit 
all that he wants to develop. Yes, he works through churches and he works through training, but we don't have to bring any of that to begin to follow him. What they need to learn and do can only be learned by beginning to follow Jesus. And that's the same invitation that he makes to you today. You don't have to bring anything to the equation. You can't bring anything to the equation. He simply invites you to come follow him, to take that step, and he will make you. He will develop in you the man or woman of Christ that he desires to make of you. Follow me, and I will make you fish for people, fishers of men and women. Notice that his goal is not simply, I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to make your present life better. I'm going to enable you to live your best life now. That's not what he's saying, is it? What is it that he's saying? He calls them to a radically new purpose in life, to be part of the spread of the kingdom of God. Really, Paul uses this word, but if you think of in terms of a, of a kingdom, of a reign, he calls us to be his ambassadors, to help him expand the kingdom, to help him tell about the kingdom, to help bring others to Jesus and help them begin to follow him. We are to be disciples who make other disciples. Again, this is the call that Jesus makes to each of us. So what's their response? And, and I really want to close with this. Immediately, uh, Andrew and Simon, they left their nets and followed him. They left their nets. They, they had gone back to their old way of life, to the, where their security was. Our security is in what we can do, what we can earn. And those aren't bad things. Jesus is not saying you've got to give up your job, you've got to give up your security. He, say, he is saying if that's what you're hanging on to that gets in the way of you following me, you need to rethink that and you need to put that in the right order. He says, uh, or we see of James and John, immediately he called them and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. James and John left not only their nets and their boat, they left their father. They left their family. And again, Jesus is not saying if you're married, you've got to leave your wife or you've got to abandon your parents or abandon your children. He is saying you have to have them in the right order. And if your family allegiances, if your family relationships keep you from following him, you, you've got to make that adjustment to follow him. You've got to put him first. And as you put following Christ first, these other priorities fall into their right place. Yes, Jesus calls some of us to leave it all and, and maybe even go to a foreign land to spread the news, the good news about the kingdom of God. But most people throughout church history, Jesus calls to follow him and be ambassadors of his kingdom in the families that he's put us in, in the occupations that he's put us in, in the communities that he's put us in, as long as those are in the right order. So the kingdom of God is to be lived out in our families, in our workplaces, in our communities. Jesus is calling you this morning, all right? Some of you, maybe Jesus is calling you, come and see. And even though you're in church, you, you've, you've kept Jesus at a, at a distance, and, and Jesus is saying, you know, even as I reveal myself through the gospel of Mark, explore me learn about me. Pray with people about me. Open your life to me. 
and I pray that some of you this morning, maybe that is the invitation, that general invitation to learn of Him, to explore Him, that you'd embrace. Others of you this morning, you've taken that first step. You, you have become the curious. You, are, you have accepted the invitation to come and see. You've heard the first call, and His call to you this morning is, come follow me. I don't know who you are this morning, but maybe, maybe your church attendance and your church involvement has been more like a spectator. You come and you see if the services are good and you like the music and you like the programs, but you really just, you're sitting in a seat. And Jesus calls you to more of that. Jesus calls you to follow Him. Jesus calls you to engage. Jesus calls you to even put your comfort and your convenience and your preferences second or maybe further down that list underneath what it means to follow Him. Where are you this morning? What invitation is Jesus speaking to you? Let me pray for us. Even as we pray, uh, as you bow your heads or however it is that, uh, that puts you in a posture of prayer, let me just ask in a moment of silence, which invitation are you hearing this morning? All of us can hear one of these. Are you hearing the come and see invitation because you've never even taken that first step? What a wonderful invitation to accept this morning. Are you hearing the come follow me invitation? Is Jesus speaking to you wherever you are in your phase of life and calling you to become more than the curious, more than a spectator, to follow him, to reorder even your priorities if that's what it takes? to make sure that family, good things like family, good things like uh, occupation, like friends, they're not getting in the way of you doing everything that he calls you to to follow him. Oh, Lord Jesus, do the work in us today by your Holy Spirit. May we hear you speak to us. May we become disciples who make other disciples, who fish for men. May we become ambassadors for your kingdom. And oh, Lord Jesus, may your kingdom come. Amen.